Last week, we started a new teaching series called Waiting is the Hardest Part. And yes, that is a not-so-subtle nod to Tom Petty. Legend. Anyway, in this series, we are studying the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, who wrote a tiny book that packs a powerful and timely message. Habakkuk was a prophet of God who lived and worked in a time of incredible turmoil. God's people were being unfaithful, and their enemies were threatening to overtake them. And Habakkuk was caught in the middle, waiting for it to get better, and waiting for a word from God to give to the people. You and I, we find ourselves waiting in a time of turmoil, too, don't we? Uh, There's a pandemic that's disrupted everyday life for the entire world, and we are waiting for it to come to an end. It's an election year, and the political insanity and intensity continues to ramp up, and we are waiting for it to come to an end. And right now, there are American cities on fire with protests over unequal treatment and police brutality, and we are waiting for it to come to an end. And on top of all that, you and I have our personal struggles. Someone you love was placed on hospice, or or you're afraid of being laid off. Your marriage is a bit of a mess, or your kid's behavior has you concerned. And what Habakkuk models for us is how to wait well in times like these. What he showed us last week is that it's okay, while we are waiting to, to throw our frustrations at God, He modeled for us that it's not a sin to say, look, Lord, life is a hot pile of garbage right now. You're allowed to say that. You're allowed to shout that at God if you need to. You're allowed an ugly cry where you ask God all kinds of questions. You know, part of what makes difficult times so tough is that we often feel like we have no outlet. Have you felt that way? Have you, have you felt yourself thinking, well, I can't get angry. I've got no time to vent. People need me to keep it together. But maybe your first step in waiting well might just be to give yourself permission to feel upset, to, to be sad, but to give it to God who can handle it. And if you need help with that, that's what me as your pastor and, and other believers are here for. Let us be that safe place where where you can get real with God with no judgment at all, just a listening ear and reminders of his promises. That was the first thing that we picked up last week. The, The second was this, that in our waiting, we must also be willing to submit to God. We can air our issues, but we also need to embrace his response to our anger and our questions. And that's what our time today is all about. It's about coming to terms with God's response to our frustrations. And here it is. Uh, This is what God told Habakkuk, and this is what he tells us. What he told Habakkuk is that he, he is at work in what we hate to accomplish what he loves. He is at work in what we hate what we have to wait through and endure to accomplish what he loves, his ultimate goodwill. Now, in Habakkuk's case, that meant that God was using the attack of the Chaldeans to bring his people back to him. God was working through that difficulty to accomplish his good. And the same is true for us. Uh, There are at least three things we know for sure as Christians. The world is broken, but God is in control, and God is good. 
the world is broken, God is in control, and God is good. Which means that God exercises his power by working in and through what is broken to accomplish his good. Now, why does he, why does he work like this? Why does he continue to allow all kinds of things that we see as bad and broken to occur? We don't know. And he doesn't say. All he gives us is his promise that while we wait and endure these difficulties, there is a purpose and that he is in and through all of it at work. Uh, but there's more. God promises to Habakkuk that there will eventually come a day when things no longer work this way. Uh, for Habakkuk, he says, there would come a day when he would judge and remove the evil Chaldeans who for the moment were allowed to run wild. And that promise to Habakkuk is prophetic to us. God was speaking not just to that prophet in his time, but he was speaking to all of us for all time. He was hinting at the moment in the future, uh, the future that's still out in front of us, a future when, when all of the bad stuff that still exists today and that for now God mysteriously works through to, to usher all things toward his will, when all of that stuff that still exists is finally gone and nothing awful or evil is around at all. What we believe is that there will come a day when Jesus Christ returns and, and recreates this whole thing. But listen, listen to what else God says at the start of chapter 2. This, this is really important. He says this, The vision, this promise, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God says, look, trust me. It will not always work like this. And this verse, this is God being adamant. He's saying, look, I pinky swear, cross my heart and hope to die. There will not always be Chaldeans who attack or, or cancer that comes back. There will not always be kids who reject the faith, injustices that occur, jobs that cut your pay, mental illness that, that, that runs roughshod over a marriage, debilitating migraines, political insanity. It's all going to come to an end. I will not let you down, God says. But you're going to have to wait. And that's, that is not easy. It will come. But God says it, it may not be in your lifetime. It may not be for a very long time. Moment of reflection. How does that make you feel? That, that his answer to you is that yes, he's going to fix this backward broken world but that it's going to be a while. I once saw a child, maybe four years old, who upon being told that he would have to wait by his mother in the store while she finished up the grocery shopping, he laid himself on the floor and he, he whined, he, he cried, he really screamed for all to hear, no, I can't wait anymore! Which at the time, I judged harshly. But now, having endured this pandemic and realizing that it's been like 60 days since I've stepped foot in a Whataburger, I get it. I feel your pain, kid. 
Uh, but here comes the big question, bigger than, than how do you feel about it. How will you respond to it? How will you respond to the truth that God's going to allow and work through things that we loathe to accomplish what he loves? Yes, giving us small victories and, and miracles along the way, here and there, but saving the big victory till the very end. What will you do with that truth, person of faith? If Habakkuk is any indication, I think there are at least three possible responses. Uh, first, we can try to rationalize or, or reason our way around it. There, there are many things about God that are easy to understand, things that he's revealed to us. Uh, we know, for example, that he created us, that he loves us, that there's a problem called sin in this world, and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us and lead us. That and so much more is clear to us. But the rest, specifically, why would a good God choose to work like this and allow what he allows? He, he simply refuses to answer. He just tells us to trust. Look, God has revealed a lot to us, but there are some questions he refuses to answer. And, and by virtue of being God, I don't know if you know this, but, but he's not required to explain himself to us. And that's frustrating. I mean, you can hear Habakkuk wrestling with this. Uh, let, let's dive back in. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And in the absence, in the absence of satisfactory answers to questions like that, in the absence of exhaustive explanations, we rationalize. We come up with our own so that we can wrap our hands around God. When my daughter was young, like four, she couldn't stand that she had to go to bed early. So one morning after waking up, she noticed an empty bowl of popcorn sitting in the living room that was left over from a movie Lisa and I had watched the night before. She saw it and she said, oh, I go to bed early so that you guys can have parties. That's how she rationalized it, which was funny to us. Until one day we found out that she told her pre-K teacher that, quote, mommy goes night at seven so she can go party, which required a lot of explanation on our part. Our rationalizations for why God chooses to work the way he works simply aren't helpful. For example, you're waiting and some problem persists and, and, and we start to rationalize. Well, well, maybe God is just off somewhere else doing his own thing, which makes God seem absent and uncaring and contradicts his promise to always be with you and be constantly concerned for you. Or you're, you're waiting and someone you love rejects the faith and it crushes you. And, and you can't understand why this might be happening. So you start to think, well, well, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter what you believe. Maybe all paths connect to God's promises, which completely goes against the very words of Jesus who says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Or, or you're waiting and life continues to be a struggle and you think, well, well maybe God's punishing me because I'm, I'm just not good enough. 
which is at odds with his message of mercy. God is not a taskmaster. He does not punish for poor performance. No, he punished all sin for all time on the cross. That's it. It's finished. When we seek to rationalize God, we end up with this, this unhelpful, unfaithful view of God, which in the end can really just frustrate us further or worse, damage our relationship with him. Uh, there's another thing. When asked to wait as God works through what's, what's bad and broken, we, we are tempted not only to rationalize, but there is this impulse in some of us to just rebel or reject God to say, look, forget God. Forget waiting and trusting in him above all. I'm, I'm going to put my heart and my hope in somebody else's hands. In fact, that's what Israel, God's people in the time of Habakkuk, were guilty of doing. They were tired of, of enemy nations looking more prosperous or seeming stronger. Rather than holding tight to God, they let go, and they just picked up the culture of the Babylonians. And you and I, we wrestle with this we wrestle with this. We're pulled and lured by this all the time. For example, let's just say you're not rich, yet your frustrating God tells you that you need to be content with what you do have. Meanwhile, someone else who, who hungers for success and stuff sacrifices a lot of things, all the things that God says really shouldn't be sacrificed, and he, and he ends up getting more success and stuff than you. And so you think, well, well, maybe I'm doing this the wrong way. Maybe contentment isn't what it's cracked up to be. Maybe they're onto something. And so you start chasing what they chase and sacrificing what they sacrifice. Or, or there's the fact that you, like every other human being, you are filled with all kinds of urges and desires. And yet you have this mysterious God who says, look, there, there's a right and a wrong way to live out these desires. But then there's a world that says, man, just, just do what you desire. And anyone who tells you otherwise is hateful. And you're like, well, I don't want to be hateful. And I do want to feel good. And I'm tired of waiting. So you start to allow and indulge what everybody else allows and indulges. Or you notice how imperfect our lives are. Yet our mysterious God tells us that he's in control. Meanwhile, politicians and talking heads, they, they promise to ease our pains and right all the wrongs. Uh, not if we just vote for them, but if we, if we also talk and act as if our whole life depends on them. And so we watch Fox News or MSNBC way more than we've ever read our Bible until our sense of peace and security is tied more to the president's poll numbers than any promise in the scriptures. Here's the thing. Rebellion against God rarely feels like rebellion against God. It feels like a sleepy, dissatisfied drift toward a more comfortable, controllable, false God. God's promise to Habakkuk is that those who, when they grow tired of waiting, tired of trusting, give their hearts to lesser gods will end up disappointed. Listen again to, to what he says. He says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. He's talking about idols. He's saying these things may, may numb the difficulty of waiting on me in a broken world for a moment, but in the end, they will let you down. They are man-made hopes, and man-made hopes for your greatest needs will never, ever satisfy. So what are we left with? 
Uh, what does it mean to submit to the promise that God is at work in the difficulties we endure and that one day, someday, he will eradicate all the difficulties we endure? What does that look like? Well, God gives us the answer. It's in chapter 2, and it comes right after his words about having to wait. Uh, listen to this. Uh, in fact, if you can, read this with me out loud. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The righteous one shall live by his faith. So here's what it looks like. Resting in God's promises. Uh, holding tight in your heart to his words. Uh, letting them lead you and, and guide you, believing that they will not fail you. Uh, while you wait, don't rationalize. It will frustrate you. Don't rebel. It will fail you. But rest. Rest in the promises that God has given to you, and he will deliver you. Now, I would argue to you that that, that was a more difficult ask of Habakkuk and the Old Testament believers than it is for you and I. You see, they merely had, had the hope that God was trustworthy for this. They had the hope that God would someday do something to prove himself that he was trustworthy and to prove beyond a doubt that they, their place in his grace was secure. But you and I, we have certainty. We, we have proof. Because we have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the guarantee that God is working good out of bad and that he can be trusted to the very end. Because in Jesus Christ, God the Father worked the greatest of good out of the greatest of bad. In Jesus Christ, God took the murder of his one and only son who was falsely accused and unjustly executed by a corrupt government to pay for the sins of the entire world, including yours. And now you are forgiven. And in Jesus Christ, he proved his trustworthiness. Christ kept his promise to rise from the dead, which means that he can be trusted with the promise that he's coming back and trusted that when he does, the time of God working in and through what's broken will be gone and all of our longings for something better will be fulfilled. Waiting and enduring is difficult. It is so difficult. But when life isn't yet what you want, you hold tight the things that you have. That's what it means to live by faith. And, and what do you have, Christian? Tell me what you have. You have Christ crucified for you. You have Jesus Christ risen for you. You have him coming back for you. You have his baptismal promise poured over you. You have his body and his blood handed to you. You have God's words screaming, I love you. I am for you. I have not forgotten you. That's what you have. And on this Pentecost Sunday, what we believe is that God's own spirit has been given to you to empower you to hold to that truth. So hold to it, grip it, sing it, share it, pray it, read it, wear it, teach it, and then watch as one day he fulfills it. And on that day, you will exclaim, I am still here. I am alive. My waiting is done. My God has fulfilled my faith. If you want a living example of what this looks like, 
then I would suggest to you that perhaps the best place to look is to our black brothers and sisters in the faith. There is no better apologetic for the hope of the gospel than centuries of African-American Christians who have clung to Christ and this promise despite slavery, oppression, racism, inequality, and the silence of the American church. You want to know what, what this looks like? Listen to the Negro spiritual sung in the slaver's field. Watch and listen to them sing, we shall overcome while marching slowly through our cities. And then listen to the sermons preached even now while they are still waiting for change that declare he will redeem it all. We can learn. We can learn from them. I'll close with this. When I think of waiting and living by faith, this is what comes to mind. It's a painting of, of Washington crossing the Delaware. It hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And the thing about this, this painting is that it's massive. It's 21 feet wide by 13 feet tall. To, to take it all in, you have to stand back like 15 or 20 feet to see it. It's, it, it, it's massive. And, and that painting, with its great detail and its massive scale, is like a an analogy for, for life. Uh, think of that painting as the entire story that God is working and weaving together. It's a masterpiece. But, but you and I, we aren't standing at the back of the room to take it all in. No, no, we're, we're right up against it. We are in our little corner, our little space of 77.7 years or whatever we get, and our nose is pressed up against the canvas. And the thing about even the, the greatest of masterpieces is that if you get that close, if you press your nose up against it, it's not going to look like much of a masterpiece. It's probably going to look like a, like a mess of weird colors and some random brush strokes. To live by faith is to believe that what you see makes sense to someone greater. That your little corner, as difficult as it is to endure, as much of a mess as it might seem, is part of a bigger picture. It's believing that there is an artist who has a brush in his hand, who sees the whole image, and who is making something beautiful. Something that in the end, you too will see. A picture that in the end, despite its dark spots and difficult strokes, you too will be thankful for. That's what it means to live by faith. Look, life is full of turmoil. And so we cry out to God as we wait through it. And his answer is that he's at work, even in what we hate, to bring about what he loves. And one day, things won't work this way. But until that day, we believe. We trust in the artist. What kind of, of waiter will you be? Will you try to rationalize? You can get your hands around God. Will you rebel and chase after another God? Or will you rest? Will you live by faith? More next week. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, waiting 
Waiting is indeed the hardest part. And yet help us to believe, help us to trust that in the difficulties that we endure, you are at work to accomplish things that, that you love that we can't possibly this side of eternity comprehend. In, in our waiting, we pray that you would give us small victories and tiny miracles as we, as we await the greatest of victories. And as we wait, though we know that you, you work through difficulty and pain, even tragedy and heartache and hardship, uh, help us to not be numb to those realities, but help us to work for good and for beauty and for justice and for truth in the midst of those things. Help us to see the difficulties that, that our friends are having to endure while they too wait for this world to be made new and help us to uphold and, and, and love and serve them. And Father, hasten the day. Bring about that day when Jesus returns and he makes all things new. Until then, give us strength by your Holy Spirit.